Section 17 of Tales of Unrest Sixth Part of The Return This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Ray Tales of Unrest by Joseph Conrad Sixth Part of The Return He heard a laugh and it not only interrupted his words, but also destroyed the peace of his self-absorption with the vile pain of reality intruding upon the beauty of a dream. He couldn't understand whence the sound came. He could see, foreshortened, the tear-stained, dolorous face of the woman stretched out, and with her head thrown over the back of the seat. He thought the piercing noise was a delusion, but another shrill peal, followed by a deep sob, and succeeded by another shriek of mirth, positively seemed to tear him out from where he stood. He bounded to the door. It was closed. He turned the key and thought, "'That's no good.' "'Stop this!' he cried, and perceived with alarm that he could hardly hear his own voice in the midst of her screaming. He darted back with the idea of stifling that unbearable noise with his hands, but stood still distracted, finding himself as unable to touch her as though she had been on fire." He shouted, "'Enough of this!' like men shout in the tumult of a riot, with a red face and starting eyes. Then, as if swept away before another burst of laughter, he disappeared in a flash out of three looking-glasses, vanished suddenly from before her. For a time the woman gasped and laughed at no one in the luminous stillness of the empty room. He reappeared, striding at her, and with a tumbler of water in his hand. He stammered, "'Hysterics! Stop! They will hear! Drink this!' She laughed at the ceiling. "'Stop this!' he cried. "'Ah!' He flung the water in her face, putting into the action all the secret brutality of his spite, yet still felt that it would have been perfectly excusable in any one to send the tumbler after the water. He restrained himself, but at the same time was so convinced nothing could stop the horror of those mad shrieks that, when the first sensation of relief came, it did not even occur to him to doubt the impression of having become suddenly deaf. When next moment he became sure that she was sitting up, and really very quiet, it was as though everything—men, things, sensations—had come to a rest. He was prepared to be grateful. He could not take his eyes off her fearing, yet unwilling to admit, the possibility of her beginning again. For the experience, however contemptuously he tried to think of it, had left the bewilderment of a mysterious terror. Her face was streaming with water and tears. There was a wisp of hair on her forehead. Another stuck to her cheek. Her hat was on one side, undecorously tilted. Her soaked veil resembled a sordid rack festooning her forehead. There was an utter unreserve in her aspect, an abandonment of safeguards, that ugliness of truth which can only be kept out of daily life by unremitting care for appearances. He did not know why, looking at her, he thought suddenly of to-morrow and why the thought called out a deep feeling of unutterable, discouraged weariness, a fear of facing the succession of days. Tomorrow, it was as far as yesterday, ages elapsed between sunrises, sometimes, he scanned her features like one looks at a forgotten country. They were not distorted, he recognised landmarks, so to speak, but it was only a resemblance that he could see, not the woman of yesterday, or was it, perhaps, more than a woman of yesterday? Who could tell? Was it something new? 
a new expression, or a new shade of expression, or something deep, an old truth unveiled, a fundamental and hidden truth, some unnecessary accursed certitude. He became aware that he was trembling very much, that he had an empty tumbler in his hand, that time was passing. Still looking at her with lingering mistrust, he reached towards the table to put the glass down, and was startled to feel it apparently go through the wood. He had missed the edge. The surprise, the slight jingling noise of the accident, annoyed him beyond expression. He turned to her, irritated. "'What's the meaning of this?' he asked grimly. She passed her hand over her face and made an attempt to get up. "'You're not going to be absurd again,' he said. Upon my soul, I did not know you could forget yourself to that extent. He didn't try to conceal his physical disgust, because he believed it to be purely moral reprobation of every unreserve of anything in the nature of a scene. I assure you, it was revolting, he went on. He stared for a moment at her. Positively degrading, he added with insistence. She stood up quickly as if moved by a spring and tottered. He started forward instinctively. She caught hold of the back of the chair and steadied herself. This arrested him, and they faced each other wide-eyed, uncertain, and yet coming back slowly to the reality of things with relief and wonder, as though just awakened after tossing through a long night of fevered dreams. "'Pray don't begin again,' he said hurriedly, seeing her open her lips. "'I deserve some little consideration.' and such unaccountable behaviour is painful to me. I expect better things. I have the right. She pressed both her hands to her temples. Oh, nonsense, he said sharply. You are perfectly capable of coming down to dinner. No one should even suspect. Not even the servants. No one. No one. I am sure you can. She dropped her arms. Her face twitched. She looked straight into his eyes and seemed incapable of pronouncing a word. He frowned at her. I wish it, he said tyrannically, for your own sake or so. He meant to carry that point without any pity. Why didn't she speak? He feared passive resistance. She must make her come. His frown deepened and began to think of some effectual violence, when most unexpectedly she said in a firm voice, Yes, I can, and clutched the chair back again. He was relieved, and all at once her attitude ceased to interest him. The important thing was that their life would begin again with an everyday act, with something that could not be misunderstood, that, thank God, had no moral meaning, no perplexity, and yet was symbolic of their uninterrupted communion in the past, in all the future. That morning, at that table, they had breakfast together, and now they would dine. It was all over. What happened between could be forgotten, must be forgotten, like things that can only happen once. Death for instance. "'I will wait for you,' he said, going to the door. He had some difficulty with it, for he did not remember he had turned the key. He hated that delay, and his checked impatience to be gone out of the room made him feel quite ill, as, with the consciousness of her presence behind his back, he fumbled at the lock. He managed it at last, then in the doorway he glanced over his shoulder to say, "'It's rather late, you know,' and saw her standing where he had left her, with a face white as alabaster and perfectly still, like a woman in a trance. He was afraid she would keep him waiting, but without any breathing time, he hardly knew how, he found himself sitting at table with her. He had made up his mind to eat, to talk, to be natural. 
It seemed to be necessary that deception should begin at home. The servants must not know, must not suspect. This intense desire of secrecy, of secrecy dark, destroying, profound, discreet like a grave, possessed him with the strength of hallucination, seemed to spread itself to inanimate objects that had been the daily companions of his life, affected with a taint of enmity every single thing within the faithful walls that would stand forever between the shamelessness of facts and the indignation of mankind. Even when, as it happened once or twice, both the servants left the room together, he remained carefully natural, industriously hungry, laboriously at his ease, as though he had wanted to cheat the black oak sideboard, the heavy curtains, the stiff-backed chairs, into the belief of an unstained happiness. He was mistrustful of his wife's self-control, unwilling to look at her and reluctant to speak, for it seemed to him inconceivable that she should not betray herself by the slightest movement, by the very first words spoken. Then he thought the silence in the room was becoming dangerous and so excessive as to produce the effect of an intolerable uproar. He wanted to end it, as one is anxious to interrupt an indiscreet confession. But with the memory of that laugh upstairs, he dared not give her an occasion to open her lips. Presently he heard her voice pronouncing in a calm tone some unimportant remark. He detached his eyes from the centre of his plate, and felt excited as if on the point of looking at a wonder. And nothing could be more wonderful than her composure. He was looking at the candid eyes, at the pure brow, at what he had seen every evening for years in that place. He listened to the voice that for five years he had heard every day. Perhaps she was a little pale, but a healthy pallor had always been for him one of her chief attractions. Perhaps her face was rigidly set. But that marmorial impassiveness, that magnificent stolidity, as of a wonderful statue by some great sculptor working under the curse of the gods, that imposing, unthinking stillness of her features, had till then mirrored for him the tranquil dignity of a soul of which he had thought himself, as a matter of course, the inexpungible possessor. Those were the outward signs of her difference from the ignoble herd that feels, suffers, fails, errs, but has no distinct value in the world except as a moral contrast to the prosperity of the elect. He had been proud of her appearance. It had the perfectly proper frankness of perfection, and now he was shocked to see it unchanged. She looked like this, spoke like this, exactly like this, a year ago, a month ago, only yesterday when she... What went on within made no difference. What did she think? What meant the pallor, the placid face, the candid brow, the pure eyes? What did she think during all these years? What did she think yesterday? Today? What would she think tomorrow? He must find out. And yet how could he get to know? She had been false to him, to that man, to herself. She was ready to be false for him. Always false. She looked lies, breathed lies, lived lies, would tell lies, always, to the end of life. And he would never know what she meant. Never. Never. No one could. Impossible to know. He dropped his knife and fork, brusquely, as though by the virtue of a sudden illumination he had been made aware of poison in his plate, and became positive in his mind that he could never swallow another morsel of food as long as he lived. The dinner went on in a room that had been steadily growing from some cause hotter than a furnace. He had to drink. He drank time after time, and at last, recollecting himself, was frightened at the quantity till he perceived that what he had been drinking was water. 
out of two different wine-glasses, and the discovered unconsciousness of his actions affected him painfully. He was disturbed to find himself in such an unhealthy state of mind, excess of feeling, excess of feeling, and it was part of his creed that any excess of feeling was unhealthy, morally unprofitable, a taint on practical manhood, her fault, entirely her fault. Her sinful self-forgetfulness was contagious. It made him think thoughts he had never had before. Thoughts disintegrating, tormenting, sapping to the very core of life, like mortal disease. Thoughts that bred the fear of air, of sunshine, of men, like the whispered news of a pestilence. The maid served without noise, and to avoid looking at his wife and looking within himself, he followed with his eyes first one and then the other, without being able to distinguish between them. They moved silently about without one being able to see by what means, for their skirts touched the carpet all round. They glided here and there, receded, approached, rigid in black and white, with precise gestures and no life in their faces, like a pair of marionettes in mourning. And their air of wooden unconcern struck him as unnatural, suspicious, irremediably hostile. That such people's feelings or judgment could affect one in any way had never occurred to him before. He understood they had no prospects, no principles, no refinement, and no power. But now he had become so debased that he could not even attempt to disguise from himself his yearning to know the secret thoughts of his servants. Several times he looked up covertly at the faces of those girls. Impossible to know. They changed his plates and utterly ignored his existence. What impenetrable duplicity! Women! Nothing but women around him! Impossible to know. He experienced that heart-probing, fiery sense of dangerous loneliness, which sometimes assails the courage of a solitary adventurer in an unexplored country. The sight of a man's face, he felt, of any man's face, would have been a profound relief. One would know then something could understand. He would engage a butler as soon as possible. And then the end of that dinner— which had seemed to have been going on for hours, the end came, taking him violently by surprise, as though he had expected in the natural course of events to sit at that table for ever and ever. But upstairs, in the drawing-room, he became the victim of a restless fate that would, on no account, permit him to sit down. She had sunk on a low, easy chair, and taking up from a small table at her elbow a fan with ivory leaves, shaded her face from the fire. The coals glowed without a flame, and upon the red glow the vertical bars of the grate stood out at her feet, black and curved, like the charred ribs of a consumed sacrifice. Far off, a lamp perched on a slim brass rod, burned under a wide shade of crimson silk, the centre, within the shadows of the large room, of a fiery twilight that had in the warm quality of its tint something delicate, refined and infernal. His soft footfalls and the subdued beat of the clock on the high mantelpiece answered each other regularly, as if time and himself, engaged in a measured contest, had been pacing together through the infernal delicacy of twilight towards a mysterious goal. He walked from one end of the room to the other without a pause, like a traveller who, at night, hastens doggedly upon an interminable journey. Now and then he glanced at her. Impossible to know. The gross precision of that thought expressed to his practical mind something illimitable and infinitely profound, the all-embracing subtlety of a feeling, the eternal origin of his pain. 
this woman had accepted him had abandoned him had returned to him and of all this he would never know the truth never not till death not after not on judgment day when all shall be disclosed thoughts and deeds rewards and punishments but the secret of hearts alone shall return for ever unknown to the inscrutable creator of good and evil to the master of doubts and impulses he stood still to look at her thrown back and with her face turned away from him she did not stir as if asleep what did she think what did she feel and in the presence of her perfect stillness in the breathless silence he felt himself insignificant and powerless before her like a prisoner in chains the fury of his impotence called out sinister images that faculty of tormenting vision which in a moment of anguishing sense of wrong induces a man to mutter threats or make a menacing gesture in the solitude of an empty room but the gust of passion passed at once, left him trembling a little with the wondering, reflective fear of a man who has paused on the very verge of suicide. The serenity of truth and the peace of death can be only secured through a largeness of contempt, embracing all the profitable servitudes of life. He found he did not want to know. Better not. It was all over. It was as if it hadn't been. And it was very necessary for both of them— it was morally right that nobody should know. End of sixth part of The Return